Thank you, Sean and Stu, for helping us as we, as we worship today. Hey, let me, let me say a big thank you to, uh, to the entire church uh, for a, a great week of Vacation Bible School. Uh, it was indeed a good week, and uh, Tammy and, and, and Sherry and, and, and Kyle and, and Misty and, and just everybody, Kaylee, everybody that was involved. You know, we had a lot of kids here this week, but, but you know what I believe was most impressive, at least to me, is I just sort of, you know, walked around and did nothing, tried to take Brother Tom's place. You know how that goes. But anyway, uh, as, I, as I walked around and uh, watched everybody do stuff, I was shocked at uh, how many adults, you know, we had almost, if you count everybody, our first response team and refreshment team and craft team, we had almost as many adults here uh, for Vacation Bible School as we did kids here. Uh, you, you, won't, you won't find that. I don't think you go to any church. You won't find any church that has almost a one-to-one ratio of, uh, of kids to adults. And, and that, sa- that says a lot. First of all, it says that you love the Lord. Uh, secondly, it, it says that uh, you love your church. And then thirdly, it says that uh, you, you love your kids and you want to uh, share the love of Jesus with them. And I just want to say thank you to, every, to the whole church. In fact, just give yourselves a hand for a great vacation Bible school. Really, really, really good job. But now, you know, also another thing I noticed, I was also excited uh, that we had uh, so many adults here. But I knew on Wednesday night, I knew that I was in the right church. Because, you know, I grew up in a redneck church, okay? We were all redneck. We didn't know it. We didn't even know the term redneck, but we were redneck. We grew up in a redneck church. But I noticed Wednesday night that, uh, that I'm in the right church. Because you might be a redneck church if on Wednesday night of parents' night, your slip and slide is made of bisqueen and bales of hay. You might be a redneck church. Thanks, Kaylee, for a great idea. You know, you might be a redneck church if your sprinkler system is held up by Rich and Daniel and it's a piece of PVC pipe with holes drilled in the bottom of it. You might be a redneck church. You know, and you might be a redneck church if at the end of vacation Bible school with all the kids watching and the grand finale, and Nikki and TJ swallow live worms in front of all the kids. You might be a redneck church. That got me to thinking a little bit about, uh, you know, what are some things you might see in a redneck church? Went on the internet and looked and wrote a few of them down. First of all, you might be a redneck church if the call to worship is, y'all come on in. You might be a redneck church if in Sunday school in the men's class, when it teaches on Jesus feeding the 5,000, that they're arguing whether they were bass, catfish, or crappie and what Jesus used to catch them. You might be a redneck church if the opening day of deer season is recognized as an official church holiday. You might be a redneck church if one of the members requests to be buried in his four-wheel drive because he ain't never been in a hole that it couldn't get him out of. You might be a redneck church if there's a special fundraiser for a new septic tank. 
You might be a redneck church if the preacher calls on Bubba to pray and five men and two women stand up. (laughs) You might be a redneck church if in a congregation of 500 members, there are only seven last names in the church directory. You might be a redneck church if people think rapture is something that you get when you lift something too heavy. You might be a redneck church if the baptism pool is a number two galvanized wash tub. We have one of those up in the youth room, by the way. You might be a redneck church if the choir robes were donated and embroidered on the front by Billy Bob's Barbecue. You might be a redneck church if the collection plates are really hubcaps from a 57 Chevy. It might be a redneck church if instead of a bell to dismiss Sunday school, everybody's dismissed with a duck call. You might be a redneck church if the pastor and his wife drive matching pickup trucks. And you might be a redneck church if the pastor dismisses everybody with Y'all come back now, you hear? You might be a redneck church. I know I'm in the right church. And as we look around our nation, we see churches that are still just as good as they ever were. Now, we don't get a lot of positive press. Not a lot of good things really are said about us in the paper, on the news, or anything like that. And as we look at our world today, as we, we celebrate what's this, the 239th birthday of our country, you know, if we, if we look, it, it's almost as if, you know, there's not a good, lot of good stuff going on. But you know, as we get in churches and get to know Christians and begin to rub elbows with one another, we see there are a lot of good things going on. Now, true, there are a lot of bad things going on. But what makes the 21st century any different than the 1st century? Sin has been in the world since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right? Got so bad before the flood, God had to wipe everybody out and start over. Throughout the Old Testament, we we see Israel wandering away from God, coming back to God, wandering away from God, coming back to God. In the New Testament, Even the religious order of the day crucified our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as the early church expanded to the uttermost part of the earth, they did it in the midst of a very evil and vicious Roman Empire. So evil and so vicious, in fact, that Christians were thrown to the lines, they were burned at the stake, and they were crucified on crosses. So down through the years, the, 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 the world has been filled with sin. We talked about it last week, didn't we? There, there's, you, you can't, if you, if you go around act, living like the devil and acting like you're a Christian, then the scripture says you're a liar. If, if you say that you, that you don't have any sin in your life, the scripture says you're a liar. If, if you say you've, you've, you've never sinned, the scripture says that, that you're a liar. Sin is, is, is a part of the world and It's even a part of our our lives as Christians, even as the church. That's why the Lord gave us his Holy Spirit to live within us. And and, and that's why we have an advocate, we have a defense attorney, Jesus Christ, arguing our case before the Father. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross. As the scripture says, he died for the sins 
of the whole world. As we continue that thought today, I want to ask you to turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. And let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 18. Romans chapter 1. And, and while I like to be positive, I believe that these may be some of the saddest verses in all the Bible. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, would you stand with, with me as we read God's word together? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to, nation, to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You may be seated. As we talked last week, we, we talked about the, the seriousness of sin. And instead of ignoring our sin or, or being like the proverbial ostrich and, and sticking our head in the sand and, and acting like nothing is going on, the Scripture says that what we should do is we should confess our sin. We should agree with God about our sin. We should, we should name it and claim it when it comes to sin. We should call it what it is in our lives. Confess it so that God, who is faithful and just, can forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we saw Barney say last week, we need to nip it in the bud. Because if we don't, 
If sin is allowed to go unchecked, if sin is, a, is allowed to, to, to reign freely, then you, you get to the point here that we read about in Romans chapter 1. Now Paul here is writing to the church that is located in Rome. The church at Rome, we know from our church history that, that there was a time when literally they had to, they had to worship in the, in the catacombs underground. Because you had the, the Jewish leaders in the city and you had the Roman government in the city looking for them to, to, to kill them on the spot. And so, so they would have to worship in secret. They would have to, to spread the gospel as, as best they could with fear of their lives each and every day. That was the kind of world that they lived in. Now, now the Roman society was, they were affluent, very materialistic. And a very sexually oriented society as well. Think that sounds anything remotely familiar to the 21st century? The 1st century and the 21st century were very, very much alike. And as the, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes said, there's nothing new under the sun. And it was this kind of environment that the, that the church lived in. It's this kind of environment that the church worshipped in. But I want you to notice as we read the book of Acts and as we look back through history, it was in this environment that the church thrived. The church flourished. In fact, as we read back through history, it seems that when times were the worst was when the church did the best. Because it sort of weeded out all the fakes. Sort of pushed aside. You're not going to be a hypocrite when uh, you, know, you know you're in danger of, of being thrown to the lions just by claiming to be a Christian. And in this society, which was so, so terrible and so heinous, even by today's standards, in a period of about 300 years, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. In 300 years, the church went from a band of 120 gathered together in an upper room there on the day of Pentecost, filled by the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and literally went to the uttermost parts of the earth, and they literally won their world with the gospel. No, it was not easy. But they were faithful. The world saw their faithfulness. The world saw them dare to be different. And if we're not careful today, as we, as we look at the news, we think, well, we might as well throw up our hands and quit. No, that's the opportunity for the church to be the church. As we look in Romans chapter 1, it's, it's almost as we read those things there, it, it, it's almost like flipping the channel through my U-verse. Think about it. Three times there the scripture says something very, very terrible. It says that God gave them up. Verse 24, God gave them up to their degenerate desires. God gave them up to their degrading passions. God gave them up to their depraved minds. You see, sin left unchecked 
will just continue to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. It's like a wildfire. And, and, and you and I as a church, we, we, we live in the midst of that kind of world. But that's part of God's purpose. Because just as God put the Holy Spirit in our lives to check us when we sin, God placed the church in the world to be the, the, the conscience for our country. Just as chapter 2 verse 1 says, who are we to judge? Church, we have to take part of the blame for the place that our country's in today. Because we've been content to hide in our buildings and have all our activities and have a, create our huge social clubs. And at the same time, our country, our world is getting more and more lost. We've come a long way from people being willing to die for their faith when surveys tell us that only about 5% of Christians have ever told anybody about Jesus. We have to bear part of the responsibility. We have to shoulder part of the blame because you and I are called to be the, the, the conscience of our nation. We, we have to be the, the, the Jiminy Cricket to Pinocchio. We've got to be the ones who stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. Now, in 239 years, our country has gone a long way, haven't we? I mean, we see it. Especially over at least the past 75 since World War II. Things that, that we would have never dreamed of, that we would have never thought of. Things that were done, but what used to be done in secret is now done open. What used to be condemned is now praised. What used to be something thought to be deplorable is now upheld as the standard. And as you and I as a church stand on our convictions, we're called haters and bigots and even worse. Have you ever noticed that everybody has a right to their opinion except Christians? And when we express biblical truth, then we're considered to be nothing more than haters. John Jay, first Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, is quoted as saying this, The Bible is the best of all books, for it is the Word of God and teaches us the way to be happy in this world and in the next. Continue, therefore, to read it and to regulate your life by its precepts. Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. A far cry from so many of our justices and judges today. None of us would disagree that, that, that sin continues to, to move. George Barner used the old analogy of the frog in the kettle. Remember that? They say, I've never really tried this. But they say that if you take a frog and you put him in a pot of hot water, if he's able, 
he'll immediately jump out. But you can take that same frog and you can put him in a pot of water at room temperature and he'll sit there and enjoy it. And you can ever so gradually, ever so subtly turn up the heat. And that frog, by its very nature, will adjust to that heat if it's subtle and gradual until he literally sits there in the pot and he's boiled to death. You see, our enemy's subtle. But the father of lies, he's very smart. And, and, and we've seen him turn up the heat in our country over the, over the past years. I remember hearing a senior adult lady saying when she was a little girl she couldn't go see Gone with the Wind because Clark Gable used the D word in the movie. A far cry from what we sit in front of our televisions with our whole families and watch these days. If, if, we, if, if in 1960 we, we saw what we see today, we would be appalled. We'd be up in arms. But because ever so subtly, ever so gradually, the enemy's forces have been pushing their agenda. We've just slowly but surely accepted it. And as a result, right now, we're on the fifth generation in a row that is more lost than the generation before it. So much so that today, the millennial generation, those born since 1982, basically will tell you, the overwhelming majority, that there is no absolute truth. And that I don't have any right to tell you that something's wrong. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. They will tell you that even though something may be not right for me, it still could be right for another person. It totally depends on the person. It totally depends on the situation. So things that used to at least to be considered taboo are no longer taboo. They're widely accepted. The frog in the kettle. Again, though, we don't need to say, well, things have gone too far. Now, we're not going to go back to leave it to Beaver. But the Roman Empire was far more wicked. are just as wicked. Now, we may get to that point. But as a church, we can continue to thrive. But what we've got to focus on, as we continue to stand on the truth and we continue to proclaim the truth, that we continue to live the truth. And we don't get sucked in. Because where does sin start? Last summer, we studied the, the book of James, and James tells us very clearly that each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Notice the progression. There's the desire. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 talks about the lust of the flesh and the, the lust of the eyes and the, and the pride of life. 
You see, our enemy, he doesn't have the power to make us sin. He can't make us do anything, but he can definitely dangle the bait. He can definitely hide the hook. He can definitely make it very, very enticing. And, and then that sinful nature that we have, even as believers, that sinful nature is, we think, I want that. Whether it's a pleasure or whether it's a possession or whether it's a prestige. And say, I want that, and we bite. But then notice the progression. Sin is born. When it's full grown, it gives birth. To death. You see, sometimes sin comes into our lives because of an undetected weakness. That's why as believers, we can't ever get overconfident. Doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. Doesn't matter how many times you've read through the Bible. The Scripture says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Sometimes in times of victory, sometimes when you're on top, that's when you're most susceptible. Because as the scripture said, pride always comes before the fall. And when we are successful, we begin to, to get overconfident. We begin to get prideful. And when we do that, we're setting ducks to fall. We've got to be careful that, as mama used to tell us, we don't get too big for our britches. An undetected weakness. Sometimes sin comes through an unexpected temptation. You see, that, that's the thing about temptation. It's always coming. It's always there. Now, do you ever feel like there are times in your life where you just want to get off the grid? I, I understand some of these folks that just move out in the middle of nowhere and get off the grid. Cut off their cell phone. Cut off their, I don't know if I want to cut off my electricity, but they cut off their electricity. They cut off their television. They cut off their internet because you can't even check your email without something flashing on the screen. I mean, if it's not one of the Kardashians, it's Bruce Jenner or something. I mean, even just trying to check your email, something pops up there. And, and you can't unsee it. I mean, it's, it, it, it's there. And, and, and sometimes it's an expected temptation. But that ought not surprise us because the Scripture says that, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has seized you or overtaken you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way that you can stand up under it. Temptations come, but, but isn't it wonderful that John tells us, greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world? But the Holy Spirit lives in our lives. And even when these unexpected temptations come, we're able to be victorious. Some, sometimes sin comes not from an undetected weakness or an unexpected temptation, but sometimes sin comes from an unprotected lie. You, you think Paul was just joking when he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6 and he said, put on the whole armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes or the wiles of the devil? Do you think he was just kidding when he said, we're in a spiritual warfare? You think he was just joking when he said we're in a constant battle? Every single day, we're at war. Every single day, the enemy wants to destroy us. Even when we're saved, he doesn't leave us alone. Because if he can't have our soul, he'll do the next best thing. He'll steal our joy. He'll steal our testimony. 
He'll destroy our families. He'll destroy our churches. If we're not putting on the armor of God and walking around with unprotected lives, believers, you ought not dare walk out of your house in the morning without having spent time in the Word and in prayer before you go. You got to get up and put on the armor. You wouldn't see a soldier run off the battle without, without grabbing his gun and without grabbing his, his uniform and, and, and putting on his helmet. One, one, one of the things that Mr. May does every day at Camp Jam, for those of you that, that is there, he gets everybody together and he, and he talks about putting on the whole armor of God. And as believers, we, we, we need to do that every single day so that we don't leave our lives unprotected. Now again, all of us sin, all of us fall short, but when we're walking around in pride, overconfident, when we're, we're not paying any attention to temptation, and when we don't protect ourselves with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and in prayer, then we're just asking for it, because sin comes. Now, you know, we understand. You know, so, sometimes we, 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 we get all upset that lost people act like they do. It shouldn't surprise us that lost people act like they do. Why? They're lost. Lost people act like lost people. They have a sinful nature. They do not have the Holy Spirit of God living within them. They are blind. They're ignorant. The Scripture says they're dead. They're acting like they're supposed to act. But you know what ought to really bother us? When Christians act like they do. When there's sin in our lives. Have you ever asked yourself why do Christians sin? Sometimes Christians sin just because we have a casual attitude about, oh, no big deal. Still saved. I'm a Baptist, once saved, always saved. Jesus died for me. No big deal. Nobody's perfect. I'm better than most folks. And we just take a very casual attitude about sin. Doesn't really matter. We don't worry about confessing it. We don't worry about learning from it. We don't worry about our testimony. Just get very casual about it. And a casual attitude normally leads to a careless lifestyle. You know, we're not diligent to show ourselves approved unto God, workers who need not to be ashamed. We, we, we don't take time to put on the armor of God. We don't take time to spend time in the Word. We don't take time. We just sort of, you know, get careless. You know, we're just sitting around waiting to go to heaven. Because we're saved, we're baptized, our name's on the church roll, which means that one day I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card and I'm going to go to heaven. But while I'm here, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And you know what a casual attitude and a, and a careless lifestyle, you know what that eventually leads to? A calloused conscience. Paul, in writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he talks about people whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. You see, that, that's how we develop habits. As, as, as believers, when we, when we first do something, the Holy Spirit of God convicts us of it. 
And the reason he convicts us of it is so that we'll confess it, so that we'll, we'll repent of it, we'll turn from it. But if we just ignore the Holy Spirit of God and we just keep on doing it over and over and over and over and over, before long that becomes a blind spot, hard spot, a callous that doesn't even bother us anymore. Remember just a few years ago, and I know I'm guilty, that if you would have heard God's name taken in vain on your television, you'd almost cut the thing off and throw it out the door, right? But we've heard it so much. We've seen so much that it doesn't even register with us anymore. We just move on. You see, the world will distort our values. The world will distort our morals if as a church we're not careful to be different. And not only to be different, but, but don't give credence or don't encourage those who do. Notice the last verse of Romans chapter 1. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I think of the Apostle Paul as he stood there. He didn't stone Stephen, but he held the coats of those who did. And as the church today, while we may not be guilty of a lot of the things that the world is guilty of, maybe by our tacit approval, by our not being willing to be the conscience of a nation, maybe we've endorsed and we've encouraged how does God deal with our sin as believers very quickly first of all the conviction of the Holy Spirit John chapter 16 verse 8 it says when he comes talking about the Holy Spirit he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment that's why God sent you the Holy Spirit to enable you to to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh so, so that he, he's there to, to help us, to, to help us as our GPS to know what to do and where to go and, and, and what not to do and where not to go. He's there to help us, and when we sin, the, the Holy Spirit convicts us. You see, as believers, we ought to feel bad when we do something wrong. We ought to feel bad when we're not living as we should live. We ought to feel bad when we're not walking in fellowship with the Father. That's who the Holy Spirit is. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And then sometimes God deals with our sin by just letting us experience the consequences of our sin. Because sin has consequences. And, it, and it, it doesn't matter what the sin is, whether we may say it's a small sin or a big sin. Sins may differ in their consequences, but they all have consequences. Adrian Rogers said, at first sin fascinates, but then it assassinates. It has consequences. We don't sin and get away with it. I mean, we look at our news today and we think, well, how do all these evil people get away with it? 
They're not getting away with it. They won't get away with it. What does the scripture just say? The wrath of God will be poured out on all evil, on all unrighteousness, on all ungodliness. The wrath of God is going to be poured out. But even as believers, while we may be saved from the eternal penalty of our sin, when we sin, sometimes we have to pay a temporal penalty for our sin. And ultimately, if we just won't listen to the Spirit, if we continue to sin and we pay no attention to the consequences, ultimately the Scripture says there is a chastisement by the Father. Because God will not allow His children to sin continually and habitually. In fact, one of the proofs that you belong to God is the fact that you cannot sin continually and habitually without being provoked to repentance. Because what did your father do when you were a child and you did things you weren't supposed to? Mine would jerk that belt off. Well, our Heavenly Father does the same thing. Now remember last week we talked about God is light, He's holy, and God is love. But a loving God won't let His children do those things that bring shame and honor and hurt themselves. When your little child runs out into the road, into traffic, and you jerk that child up and you whip them for doing that, you're not doing that because you're mad at them or because you dislike them or because you hate them. You're doing that because you love them and you don't ever want to see them do that again. I didn't really understand that until I became a parent myself. But notice what the scripture says about the chastisement of the father. In Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 through 8, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? Notice verse 8, if you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline as far as believers, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. You ever tried this on your dad? Well, dad, everybody else gets to do that. Nobody else gets in trouble for that. And your dad probably answered pretty much the same way my dad answered. I'm not worried about them. They're not my child. That's between them and their father. You see, the world, children of the devil. But as believers, we're children of God. And the scripture says, whom God loves, he chastises. In fact, we ought to thank God for the discipline that he gives to us. Because it proves that we belong to him. Very quickly, how should we respond? Well, first of all, as believers, we've got to respond with conviction. We, we, we have to take God's word and we got to stand on it. We, we, we don't get our moral values from the Supreme Court. We don't get it from Congress. We don't get it from the White House. We don't get it from CNN. We don't get it from Hollywood. We don't get it from the Internet. Everything comes from the word of God. And we have to stand on our convictions. Now again, when we do that, 
again, we're going to be called haters and bigots and all kinds of things. But the scripture says that we're to stand on our convictions. But while we stand on our convictions, at the same time, we've got to be men and women of compassion. Because the scripture says that we speak the truth, but how do we speak it? We speak it in love. Because the scripture says that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our our father hates sin, but he loved us as sinners and we have to be like our father. We've got to do the same thing. There's got to be conviction, but there's got to be compassion. And there's got to be concern. When Jesus looked at the multitudes, the scripture says that his insides churned. He was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were scattered. And when we look at our world today, it it makes us angry. Makes us mad. Sometimes it gets us discouraged and disappointed but it ought to break our hearts because we know that all these people that are looking for love in all the wrong places, we've got the answer. We've got the true love. And it's the church of the 21st century. Like the church of the 1st century, we just need to be busy doing what God has called us to do going and making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And remember, lo, I'm with you always until the end of the world. Would you bow your head just for a moment? Miss Barbara's coming to play softly. Maybe all the events of the recent days have sort of got you on... uh, where you just don't want to hear anything else bad. You don't want to hear anything else negative. Would you listen to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit reminding you that God loves you? That God's in control. He has a purpose and a plan. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior. There's never been a time when you really gave your heart to Jesus Christ. Scripture says today's the day of salvation. This is your opportunity to do that. By simply saying, Lord, I come to you just as I am. A sinner. But I confess my sin, I turn from my sin, I place my trust, my total faith in you and what you did for me on the cross. Scripture says if you'll do that, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe today as we look around the world, we just need to bring it a little closer to home. People in our own family, our own household our own neighborhood. 
folks that just for somehow, some way, they're just out there. Now, we're not going to win them by beating them over the head with anything. But maybe like the New Testament church, we'll win them by, first of all, being daring to be different. Standing on the word. Because we serve a God who's life. And then reaching out in love. You see, you don't have to agree with what somebody's doing in order to have lunch with them. You don't have to agree with how somebody's living in order to start up a conversation with them. First century church turned their world upside down because they were courageous enough to speak the truth. But they were compassionate enough to do it in love. And that balance for you and me as believers will allow us to turn our world upside down. Who knows as a nation if we'll get to celebrate another birthday. But in the time that we have left, church, let's just be the church. Let's just love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And let's love our neighbors ourselves. That's the way we'll make a difference in this sinful world in which we live. Sin is serious, but we have the answer. Jesus, who died on the cross for our sin. I want to encourage everyone, hang around for our small group Bible study. We're going to look at a man named Abraham.